Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hi, everyone. This is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. I'm here today with Jim McEwen, professor of classics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, to discuss his new book, A Cabinet of Ancient Medical Curiosities, published this year by Oxford University Press. Jim, welcome to New Books in Medicine. Thank you for having me. So we like to get things started here by talking about um, your career trajectory and how it is that um, in your previous work, you were led to the kinds of questions and concerns and the approach that you have taken uh, in this really interesting collection. Oh, well, that's an easy question, really, in, in as much as it was kind of a natural growth. Uh, I have an overall ambition to read all the uh, Greek and Latin texts that survive uh, from antiquity and uh, right up through pagan, uh, uh, the pagan cultures. And um, a large part of that does have to do with medicine. Um, but the book itself started as an outgrowth of a, uh, a course I was teaching on the Greek and Latin origins of medical terminology, not being myself a doctor, although I could explain quite confidently why some big long word was the word it was. I hadn't really got too much of an idea of how it fitted into uh, medical culture. Uh, so it gave me um, a way of, as it were, 
to be to use a medical image, sugaring the pill a bit by <laughs> uh, giving students some sort of idea of uh, the cultural background. I tended to go for the the order aspects uh, simply because that um, does tend to catch a student's interest and imagination rather better. It tends to be the thing they'll remember. And what would you say, do you think that the intended audience of this book is largely students, largely for just intrigue, medical practitioners? How would you characterize it? Uh, well, I'm, I, the book uh, is intended to entertain uh, anyone who reads it, but more than just entertain them, to give them some sort of idea of uh, well, what ancient culture was like, because uh, medicine is one of the most basic things in society. And so you keep hearing about uh, rich people, slaves, women, foreigners, um, religious ideas and superstition that might go along with that. Uh, there's so many aspects of culture that there's more. Le- there's something for everyone in that, even if it's not that uh, I suppose the best thing would be to to provoke some sort of um, uh, thinking about uh, uh, something, some snippet of information that we have from antiquity that uh, might seem peculiar in some sort of a way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in a way, it's giving a kind of uh, a set of points of departure, right? painting a picture of mm-hmm. the various aspects of the culture through, as you say, kind of the, the odder and more entertaining parts to then sort of you know, build toward. I mean, <laughs> this is getting at this uh, distinction that we were just chatting about between the, uh, the particular and the general, right? So it's really about like assu- assimilating this collection of particulars rather than trying to derive some sort of general principles about, um, about uh, culture and antiquity. Uh, that's uh, most emphatically correct. Uh, the book consists largely of um, just my translations of things that people said either about doctors or things that doctors said. Uh, and they are, as long as there is enough context uh, or, the, or the context can be inferred, I don't say anything more than that. And I, I leave it to the reader. I have no uh, grand theory to propound here. It's more or less uh, illust- meant to be no more than illustrative of the um, society that the, that it comes from. And when I say society, of course, mm, I don't think anybody could write uh, a book in a couple of hundred pages that uh, would cover the whole period because we're talking about um, say uh, 800 years uh, BC all the way up to um, about a thousand AD and uh, that would be a bit too much to cover but I have picked out bits here and there which uh, don't give a coherent historical context but uh, do I think they're gathered more for the subject matter which might be you might get two uh, snippets of information which were 1500 years apart mm-hmm yeah, and you make and you make a claim uh, in the beginning that you know this this approach is justified because there is a lot going on, but there's not quite so much as sort of big change over time narrative that is yes. interesting to you. Yeah, yeah, uh, that, that's a fundamental idea. The it, nowadays, of course, uh, medicine is well. There's just about it's a discipline that's more uh, forward looking than medicine. So you can just consider the last. 
couple, uh, couple of decades. But in antiquity, uh, the, there was a great reverence for the past. So that, for example, Hippocrates, uh, he comes in about, the, about 400 BC. Uh, he is revered by Galen uh, in the second in the second century AD. Uh, well, that's what 600 years later. And uh, if Galen um, thinks there's anything else, if anybody says something else, Galen tests it against what Hippocrates had said. Well, uh, that would be inconceivable nowadays when I mean nobody looks back 600 years now and. <laughs> Having said that, Galen himself became the monument of classical um, medicine, and uh, he was revered for a thousand years after that. So it was conservatism of a very high order that uh, one finds in uh, ancient medicine, which for my purposes is very nice in as much <laughs> as I don't have to contextualize so much because what someone says in the fourth century BC might as easily be said by somebody in the fourth century AD. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, that's, uh, that's really interesting for overall broader framing. And just one more question on that. So are you, so a lot of these, um, as you say, these are, um, works and snippets that haven't been translated fully before. So are all of the, uh, quotations in the book, are they all your own translations? Um, I, I almost all of them. There are some that uh, actually partly enjoy the challenge of doing it. Some of these medical texts uh, were very hard to read till you got into them, but once you, once you could, they were. Uh, it, was, it was quite technical stuff. But some I couldn't uh, have access to because they I was reliant on uh, translations already in English or maybe more prominently German, of uh, texts which we don't have anymore in Greek uh, or Latin, but which uh, survive only in Arabic. And for those, I was very grateful to take uh, what was available. Uh, and not all ancient texts are now available uh, in any form, uh, but I was uh, very glad to take what I could get from the scholars who are working on that aspect of, you know, the later aspect of uh, medicine. And I will say uh, the scholarship nowadays on ancient medicine is enviably high uh, in its quality. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm perfectly happy to take translations from such great scholars. Excellent. Well, so I think that that's enough uh, for us to kind of dive into the material. Um, so... Uh, one of the things that I found most interesting uh, was the way in which class comes up a lot in the different snippets. I mean, there's a way uh, as uh, so you have a, the snippet on page 15 in which uh, Alexander of Tralles claims that uh, rich patients will refuse medical treatments uh, because they prefer magic amulets. So I'm wondering, can you give us a sense of some of the class discussion that's going on in these uh, texts? Uh, yeah, that's uh, you've um, you've put your finger on it exactly. This this was a uh, it was an ongoing um, could you say problem here. Most doctors uh, were uh, of rather low status in society, um, and 
so they didn't have the authority that people nowadays will give them. I mean, of course, one we do automatically what our doctors tell us, but in antiquity, not so much. I mean, a doctor might himself be a slave, or he might be someone who had been a slave and was now what's he's in the recognized social category of freed man, someone who had an obligation to his former master. Well, if he wanted to give him some uh, effective treatment that was uh, painful or even inconvenient, he had very little uh, pressure that he could bring to bear on his patient uh, and the patient could just dismiss him out of hand or as we hear would happen, get another doctor's opinion. And we're always hearing about uh, trade rivalry uh, among doctors for competition for the, um, well, the the rich pickings in some cases that were available by having uh, rich um, clients, rich patients. Uh, But you can see that had a very detrimental effect on uh, the the reputation that doctors might have in antiquity. But um, more specifically on your question, uh, we one does have to deal with this idea that doctors could be, um, they could be a much lower class than their patients. And those, by the way, are the patients we hear about. We don't hear very much about poor people getting treatment at all. Uh, poor people, and we have to think about the antiquity as being, as it were, third world status that most people were struggling to survive uh, they had to uh, they, they simply couldn't stop work for the luxury of medical treatment uh, and uh, uh, what they did it had to be you know a quick fix uh, and then they would uh, they would get back to work and be cured or uh, we're told or they would simply die and that would be that would be the end of that for them. But it um, uh, so as I say, it's very medicine is very much uh, an elitist thing in terms of what we hear. That's not to say that doctors weren't uh, uh, idealistic and didn't treat uh, patients uh, uh, free or for um, for very little. But um, by and large, that's not what we happen to hear about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you have examples throughout of kind of this uh, various invocations of a moral code. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. this Hippocratic oath that is still sort of in a you know a truncated version, right, taken up in uh, medical practice today. But there's this uh-huh. compunction throughout to not be beholden to um, profit and to try as much mm-hmm. as possible to serve the yeah. poor. But the the picture that you give is much more complex. It's that doctors are not this high this high status profession that we see today so the meaning of that compunction is just so much different yeah uh, actually if i can take take up what you said about the hippocratic code uh, the, uh, the one naturally thinks of the hippocratic code as being something that goes back to hippocrates and was a 
code of conduct observed by doctors throughout antiquity. Uh, that's not the case. Uh, first of all, Hippocrates is a very shadowy figure. <laughs> We've got about 70 treatises uh, that are attributed to him, and um, it is possible that he wrote some of them, uh, but it's equally possible he wrote none of them, and he certainly did not write all of them because some of them have uh, uh, the, the the principles laid down in one treatise contradict what you get in another, and so you couldn't have had it from the same person. It's just, it's just attraction to a big name. But so Hippocrates was just one uh, one great doctor, uh, and but there were other medical sects uh, which which were rivals to him, uh, and uh, uh, we don't hear much. Uh, about we don't hear as much about them because Hippocrates was had the great boast of being uh, uh, the hero of Galen when he came along. So Hippocrates lasted, but uh, not not the Hippocrates oath was not a universal uh, thing. And by the way, you may have noticed we're talking here about Greeks. Uh, Greeks uh, in. In antiquity, if you wanted to be a doctor, you either were a Greek or you said you were a Greek uh, because uh, being a Greek uh, was kudos. It it, uh, it helped your reputation um, because Greeks were regarded as the people who knew about medicine. The Romans, uh, uh, when they... When they went to doctors, they uh, kind of expected to have Greek expertise that uh, they themselves didn't have. Hmm. That's really interesting. And going back to your discussion of Galen, and this actually harkens back to an earlier point in our discussion about the <clears throat> continuity of the Galenic tradition. Um, there's this thesis now largely debunked, I think, by historians of medicine in multiple ways that the modernization of medicine was predicated upon um, physicians going in and dissecting and opening up bodies. And that this yeah. was, you know, the thing that uh, led to the transformations of Western medicine. So there are many ways of poking holes in this, but I'm wondering about um, dissection in medical culture and antiquity, um, its prohibitions, what was acceptable to be dissected or not. Yeah. Galen has those very famous experiments with um, the bladders of, I think, is it frogs mm -hmm. or... Uh, pigs, I pigs, think, because yes. uh, pigs, uh, uh, you can you can uh, stop them squealing by cutting their whatever it is they squeal with. And then you tie them together again and they'll start squealing again. And he said, use pigs for this experiment because uh, they make the most noise. Mm -hmm. anyway, that's, that's, by the way, but you... To your rather uh, larger point about dissection, now that that is uh, that is a point. It's of great significance. Uh, it was forbidden for religious reasons, not quite known why, uh, to perform human dissection. Uh, you could dissect anything else you liked, but uh, and this is a bit bit shadowy. Uh, it is believed that for about a generation after the foundation of Alexandria in Egypt, um, say that in, during the third century, this would have happened. Uh, 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 dissection uh, of um, uh, humans uh, and anatomy, anatomical studies in general uh, thrived there. 
But then, uh, for whatever reason, again, they were stopped and um, didn't start up again. And uh, doctors say uh, later on how ignorant they are about the internal workings of the human body. They say, we know as much about the... um, the, the the stars in the sky as we do about our our insides because we can't see them. <laughs> now there's a there's a bit of an exaggeration here because um well Kick Galen himself uh, he started his medical career um as a uh, uh, uh the the doctor for the arena in Pergamum uh, he uh, his job was to patch up gladiators, so he must have seen the insides of a fair few people. And um, uh, we're told that anybody who wants to know about med- about anatomy uh, should um, should go on campaign with a mercenary army, because a mercenary army is likely to be in battle, and then they're going to see a lot of. Um, well, blood and guts. So they weren't entirely ignorant about it, but uh, they um, the things they didn't know really until well in 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 the long view until practically yesterday uh, are they're amazing. Medicine has been transformed. I mean, they didn't know. They nearly found out, but they didn't know about the circulation of the blood. Uh, this is kind of one of those things about anatomy. When you look at a, an empty body and you see there's nothing in the arteries, sorry, when you see a dead body and there's nothing in the arteries, uh, you have to say, well, what, what's this for? Mm-hmm. Well, there were various ideas. One was it was the way the soul went round the body. Uh, one was that uh, it's how breath went round the body, but not blood. Uh, blood uh, was in the veins, so that was a that was a different uh, thing. Sometimes they didn't distinguish veins and arteries uh, in their terminology, even. But um, uh, and and as I say, lots of other things. Until you find out about cells, anything involving a microscope uh, or shall we say infection, then. You're kind of that 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 limits what you can do, uh, and uh, that that was really the middle of the 19th century. I mean, people they they still said to the start of the 20th century, um, uh, the uh, your chances of survival if you were taken into a hospital were not as good as they as they might be, uh, simply because of not yet understanding enough about uh, infection. Mm-hmm. And they, they never they never got a grasp of that at all in, an, in antiquity. Mm-hmm. And bringing up the hospital uh, sort of leads me to another question that is perhaps like a subtext of the book, but what were the spaces of medical practice that were available? Was this usually uh, a private phenomenon? Were there kind of public spaces where physicians could be sought out? Mm-hmm. Um, the if you, uh, the usual thing, well, we know that there were doctors did have surgeries, and patients could go there. That did happen. But uh, if you were poor, you couldn't afford any doctor, uh, and if you were rich, you could afford all the doctors you would li- you, you would like because the um, the disparity between rich and poor was tremendous, and uh, it, it, you would be more likely to call in uh, a doctor or several doctors. Uh, if you were rich, and they would come to you, uh, as would anybody 
of a lower class who is bringing you services of any sort, not not you uh, going to them. And the upshot was there really weren't any hospitals um, as we would understand them, except uh, they, those gradually arose uh, with uh, the Roman army uh, because obviously soldiers were wounded, uh, needed treatment of whatever sort. And uh, so they, uh, and also the Romans were in, fairly stable in where they would be. They weren't, they weren't marching and invading places all the time. Uh, and uh, so they could have small or in some cases uh, bigger uh, institutions which we would recognize as hospitals. But uh, not really. It was very much a private uh, thing. And a consequence of that is there was very little interchange between doctors. They they didn't have case notes which they passed on, as it were, because they were very much acting on their own. And uh, and that applied. If several of them were called in to a rich patient, they wanted to be the one who stood out and was whose ideas for treatment were favoured. They they were likely not to want to. Um, pass on their ideas to their colleagues. I mean, we hear about, um, uh, I think it's Galen. If it isn't, it might, it might as well be. About uh, Galen uh, saying that um, they are standing around a patient's bed, mustn't bicker and disagree with each other uh, and try to outdo one another with their ideas, which shows you something, it shows you that that is exactly what they did do. And uh, that's hardly the way things are nowadays. Uh, Jim, so right. I understand that you had uh, prepared a couple of passages on subjects that were interesting for you. So I'm wondering if we could maybe start by talking about uh, theories of mental health. One thing that was interesting that I observed in the book is there's this there is a somewhat stark division between um, physical causation and mental causation. And there's, uh, mm-hmm. there's even a quote, uh, I think, where... Uh, it was Plutarch who was designating that there's this tendency for some doctors to overdiagnose and in a way, including mm-hmm. mental illness within that um, medical ontology was sort of a way of doing that. So could you give us a sense of some of the material that deals with um, how people thought about mental illness in antiquity? Well, maybe if we could start off by talking about the purpose of the brain, just to show you how off center they were. The um, in antiquity, the uh, it wasn't clear which part of the body ruled the others, and of course that's the question that we wouldn't maybe pose that way. But the three candidates were the stomach, uh, uh, because if you starve the stomach, all the other parts will wither and die. Uh, but the two that maybe on a more philosophical level were considered were the heart and uh, the other was the brain. But to some people, it was the heart because uh, the word for heart is cardia. Now, this this will sound daft, but this is from Stoic philosophy. And they liked this sort of what we would call simple wordplay, but they would make deductions from it. Uh, The word for heart is cardia. Everybody knows, uh, and if you, there was a um, another dialect form of it, not cardia but cradia, 
And if you change the D sound in that word to a T sound, you get kratia. And kratia, as in words like democratia, democracy, means ruled by the people. Therefore, by its very name, it must be the heart that rules the body. Now, that probably doesn't feature in medical textbooks nowadays. Um, But once you've determined that the heart is the center of things, which is quite an achievement when you don't understand about the circulation of blood, you're you're going quite far to get that. Um, But then then you have to demote the brain. And uh, to some people, the brain was just an empty mass of tissue with no particular purpose. Uh, it wasn't the only part of the body that was dismissed uh, in that sort of way as being really just um, something to make up the numbers within the body. Um, uh, the spleen, it wasn't a, nothing was understood about the spleen, and the word spleen was etymologized again wrongly to mean something which supplements the body to stop the various organs, the, the other various organs which do have a purpose uh, from bashing into each other. It was kind of just um, bubble wrap, as it were, uh, with no, no purpose. Um, but anyway, now, on, on medical illness, uh, there, was, um, there, was, there was treatment for it, but of a very primitive type, simply because they didn't understand about it. And uh, here's a um, piece of quotation uh, from the second century, A.D. from Plutarch, he says, uh, whenever a doctor went to visit a patient and find him lying in bed, groaning and refusing food, if he then examined him and determined that he was not of a fever, he said, mental illness, and went away. Now, there's quite a lot you could get out of that. First of all, the idea that there's no way of helping the patient because he has mental illness. And the other thing is, why doesn't the doctor at least try? Uh, and the reason why a doctor would be tempted not even to try is that to have a failure amongst your patients, someone whom you tried to treat but were unsuccessful in doing so, this would affect your reputation. And your reputation by word of mouth was crucial because you didn't have a, um, uh, a various uh, scrolls showing your, um, that you had um, graduated from such and such a qualifying institution. Uh, uh, in fact, it's even suggested, and not facetiously, that uh, uh, a do- all a doctor has to do to be a doctor is to put out a sign saying he's a doctor, and if he really wants to attract patients, he should say that he was trained in Alexandria. Nobody's going to be able to, um, to disprove this, and it sounds good. So, uh, as you can see, <laughs> that would be an absolute nightmare for us today. We wouldn't have that. But uh, not wanting to teach uh, to, to treat me- uh, mental illness and various other types of illness um, was um, you know, that that was just part of uh, the way doctors were. There were limitations to what they uh, what they could do, and they were pretty tiny shrewd about trying to experiment. Some other aspect of this conservatism that you get in ancient medicine, indeed ancient life generally. Mm-hmm. 
And amidst all and, this, oh yeah, and amidst all this conservatism, sorry? I'm interested also. Uh, what role did superstition play in all of this? Oh, um, uh, superstition uh, is um, no. Uh, I should say at least once very assertively <laughs> that uh, ancient medicine, as it appears in my book, because the purpose is. Uh, really for entertainment and uh, uh, provoke thought that way. Uh, uh, ancient, we wouldn't be where we are without it. Uh, there were lots of great doctors who were very intelligent and uh, practical in what they were doing, but they were also pretty, uh, they were always coming up against the weight of superstition uh, that uh, people thought that something would be effective and uh, they went interested in something otherwise. But let me let me read you one uh, pa- passage. Um, I won't say yet uh, who wrote it, but uh, this is a um, this is for relief from tonsillitis. And take several threads, preferably dyed with sea purple, put them round the throat of a viper, and choke it. Then tie all the threads round your own neck, presumably with the viper now dead, but still hanging on it. Uh, this amulet gives amazing relief from tonsillitis, tonsillitis and any growths in the region of the neck. And that uh, wonderful bit of advice comes from Galen. Uh, Gale, Gale, now, Galen, I mean, he wrote... He's the most, by far, the most voluminous writer uh, surviving from antiquity. So you're always going to find some things in him that you might be amazed at. But that sort of thing recurs. I mean, he he has a certain respect for astrology in a way in which we wouldn't take an astrology as a as a kind of uh, super superstition. Um, you know, the conjunction of the planets will produce this and this effect and that effect. And he says, I have taken careful note of this in my for my own health, and I have observed that the astrologers are correct. And uh, so, if if he can be like that, what's it like at the other end of the spectrum where you get? That medicine from people who have no resources, no uh, no education. Uh, it'll obviously be uh, there'll be a lot more of it. And uh, of course, this is not it's not all bad. I mean, uh, the placebo effect uh, of some of this uh, could could be helpful, but that's um, that's all it was. Uh, and I emphasise we do have doctors who um, are rather more objective rather more practical than uh, the what are, what would appear in the um the more eccentric cures and diagnoses that uh, I talk about i mean there's a a wonderful chap if i if I were sick in antiquity the the chap I would want to go to is a chap called Sorenus uh in the second century uh a d he um We've only one work from him surviving his own gynecology, but he obviously was really practical. He comes straight out and says, amulets are no use whatsoever. Uh, and you, you do get people like that, but they would seem to be the, in the minority. And why is he saying it? Uh, modern doctors don't say, don't bother wearing an amulet. 
because there isn't enough pressure to suppose that that's the case. Um, can, can I say a bit about women? Um, <laughs> women, yeah, absolutely. Uh, both as doctors and patients. Uh, this, the, the um, kind of hidebound way that ancient society worked, stratified um, according to the status and wealth and what have you. It, it's built over also into the mm, the status and the role of women. Um, and if I, can, if I can say something about women as patients to start with, uh, the um, um, gynecology was not very well developed, uh, as were women's uh, disease, diseases that are specific to women in general. Um, if I can uh, just read a passage uh, uh, from a late uh, doctor called Aretias. Uh, he he's talking about um, a phenomenon called the wandering womb. Nowadays, please, in the wandering womb, the womb is where it is and it stays there. But possibly um, the inside workings of the body, the internal workings, uh, you might think that the womb could wander about. And so they did uh, for thousands of years. They thought this. Um, and uh, here, is, um, here is a comment on uh, hysterical suffocation. And hysterical means uh, caused by the womb. Um, yeah, he says, the womb is an organ found in women. It lies between a woman's sides and is very like a living creature in that it moves of its own volition to both the right and left side. It can move upwards to the floating ribs or laterally towards the liver or the spleen. It can also move straight down. The womb is altogether erratic. It enjoys pleasant smells and rushes towards them, but is bothered by foul smells and tries to avoid them. Uh, a, wo uh, a woman's womb is generally like an animal within an animal. And, uh, 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 well, building on that statement there, the, um, the way to cure the wandering womb was uh, if a woman was being suffocated, uh, this hysterical suffocation, uh, the... Um, the thing to do was to give her sweet things to breathe in through her sweet sweet smells to breathe in through her nose. Uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I beg your pardon. Uh, nasty smells to breathe through her nose, uh, but to to light a fire with um, um, sweet wood, uh, sweet smelling wood, and or what have you, and get her to sit over it so that the fumes would go upwards through her body, and that would attract her womb downwards. Okay, so mm -hmm. there's, there's one fairly, um, I mean, that was a more or less universally believed idea, you know, something that's to us obviously quite impossible, but it was, um, that stayed for a very long time. There were other things like the, um, about how little uh, doctors who were mostly men um, uh, understood about women. Uh, for example, we're told confidently uh, uh, no woman is ambidextrous. Uh, well, I told, the first time I saw this, I, I, I had a class of um, about 25 students, uh, 15 women, and the rest uh, were men. And uh, I had no men who were ambidextrous, but in that class, uh, 
I had uh, one girl who could write out a line of Greek poetry uh, with her right hand, then she wrote it out with her left. And there was another girl who wrote the same line simultaneously with her right and left hand. Now, the point of that is how little practical observation uh, comes into that. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, or lack of interest in what was there for all to see. Uh, but to actually make the positive statement, no woman is ambidextrous, seems to me, um, uh, well, it shows that women were not high priority in uh, the profession. There's pl- there are plenty of text writing, uh, none and gynecology certainly does speak. But gynecology was something that was mostly done by women. Um, we do yeah, hear yeah. about we do hear about uh, women doctors, and in the last twenty years, a lot of work has been done on this, and we can see that. Uh, they weren't uh, as uh, marginalised as was always thought. You you wouldn't see it by just reading the text, but there are other um, other things like uh, inscriptions, dedications, uh, which show this. If I if I could read you a, a funeral. Uh, an, epi- an epitaph for a woman doctor uh, mm, set up by her by, by her husband. Um, I think I think it sort of puts the um, it puts women in context in this regard. You know the the ambivalence uh, about them being um, as were second class citizens uh, or doubtful as doctors and. Um, it is. This, this uh, epigram, uh, it comes from uh, Pergamon, which uh, the heartland of medicine for a long time. That's where Galen came from. It's, uh, it's by a doctor, and it's honoring his wife, who is also a doctor. Uh, he says, Farewell, my wife, Panthea, from your husband, whose grief at your devastating death is inconsolable. Hera, the goddess of marriage, has never before beheld such a wife, excelling in beauty, wisdom, and discretion. All the children you bore resemble me, and you took care of your husband and your children. And you kept the tiller of our domestic life on a straight course, and you exalted our shared reputation as doctors. Nor, even though you are a woman, did you fall short of me in skill. Now, if I were Panthea, I would be a wee bit offended about the last sentence there. He was going quite well until he came to that. But then he said, and it's it's unambiguous, uh, a concessive clause there, although you are a woman, uh, in other words, the implication being that women were not expected to match men in, uh, in this regard, or it was a bit of a surprise. But no, so... I'm persuaded by what people have been saying over the last 20 years about women not being marginalized as doctors as much as we thought. I mean, it was part of modern prejudice as well. But there is one lingering thought that recurs to me, and that is, here's Panthea. She's a doctor. As far as we know, she's a general practitioner, as we would say. And I would just wonder, knowing the attitudes of uh, Greeks in antiquity uh, and uh, uh, 
in lots of societies until, and probably including nowadays, I, I would wonder how many men would want to be treated by a woman doctor. I mean, it's the sort of thing where you would expect, if it happened a lot, uh, you would expect to hear about it as being unusual. But we don't, that's one thing we don't actually actually hear about so and so the woman doctor being called in or having a success that men didn't or what have you. So um, I'm just, I think our picture there has in so many other ways is just a bit incomplete. And it's interesting with the question of like the written record, right? Because when you have mm. uh, historical sources that are all kind of written down by men with their, you know, historical prejudices of the time, it's hard to really figure out what that sort of sphere of expertise would look like. Um, so mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It seems like there is a lot of space for interpretation, but as you've, as, as you've looked through these medical writings, have you found, uh, that many women authors? Uh, oh, no, uh, actual authors, uh, are, there, there are practically none. Uh, it's more that they're talked about than that they survive. But having said that, when you consider the number of uh, doctors, of, whether men or women, uh, uh, there, there, there were uh, through, what, 1,500 years or so, um, there are very few of them that have survived. The, the medical texts uh, are, uh, they're very rich and abundant, but they, uh, the number of doctors, uh, of male doctors even, is not that great. I mean, if you took away Galen uh, and Hippocrates, you would uh, you wouldn't have that much left. But I'm afraid it, it would be wonderful to have uh, a, a um, you know a few case studies from uh, from a woman uh, doctor. But well, we don't we don't have those. That's fascinating. So as we're kind of uh, wrapping up here, I'm just wondering if you could uh, let our listeners know um, what next after this work, what kind of current project are you working on? Is it another translation compendium type thing? Um, yeah, we'd love to hear about it. Oh, well, <laughs> um, what, I, what I'm working on uh, now is uh, I'm not quite sure what the presentation uh, will be, uh, but I'm working on Greek and Roman law. Uh, which is a completely different thing from Greek and Roman medicine because Greek and Roman medicine was a continuum. Uh, Greek law is, uh, we we have over 100 speeches um, and we have obviously a lot of opinions about law courts and what have you. Uh, In Rome, we have, apart from Cicero in the first century BC, uh, and he's voluminous, we have no speeches, but we do have vast amounts of uh, uh, jurisprudence which became the basis for um, what we have uh, in many Europeans and the, Amer- the American system nowadays. Um, but those are those, unlike medicine, they can't neatly be put together there to the, the nature of the evidence just makes them um, completely separate. It's quite good fun that seeing, uh, particularly the Greek side of things, uh, seeing uh, uh, how different uh, courts were then from ours. The, um, uh, they didn't have judges, they just had a jury who listened to the, um, the, the, um, the defendant and the accuser, and then without conferring, uh, they just gave their verdict. But it wasn't, uh, as it were, 12 good men and true. 
uh, the courts, uh, the jur- juries consisted of at least 201. It had to be an odd number because of uh, to make sure there were no draws. Uh, 201 and it could go up to 6,000. Uh, so it was like being in the theatre and uh, certain, uh, certain, shall we say, for someone like myself who's as interested in the scurrilous side of things as in the, shall we say, the more serious side, it leaves plenty of scope for anecdotes of one sort or another. Great. Well, that sounds fascinating. Uh, so, Jim, thank you so much for your time with us today. And uh, well, to our you're listeners. You're very welcome. Oh, of course. And to our listeners, uh, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been New Books in Medicine. And remember, um, A Cabinet of Ancient Medical Curiosities is available through Oxford University Press. Thanks so much.